welcome to New Books in Film on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will... Welcome to New Books in Film on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Chris Nashawati, Entertainment Weekly film critic, about his book, Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story published in 2018 by Flatiron Books. In this fun and informative story, Chris presents a history of a once-derided film that has gone on to be one of the best examples of movies that came out of the National Lampoon early Saturday Night Live era. It's the story of a movie being made by newcomers to Hollywood who flew by the seat of their pants to feature comedians and regular actors in a mishmash of slapstick, golf humor, and explosions. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Nashawati. Hi, Chris. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Um, I will say that Caddyshack is uh, one of the films that's particularly important to me because I grew up with a bunch of brothers, and some of them were golf fans. And this film was one of those films that you could, you know, a bunch of one-liners, and so it's not unusual it's the kind of film where you quote lines to each other just as a normal way of life when you're together. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, th- I can't think of a movie that's got more quotable lines and, and lines that people quote more often than Caddyshack. Uh, believe it, I, the other ones that I can think of are Blues Brothers, which of course came uh-huh. out at the same time, and then Animal House, too. I mean, 0.0 is always going to be a quotable line from Animal House, but I understand that you're right. Caddyshack's pretty good with it. Um, so you write for enter before we get into the book, I'd like to get a little bit of your background. You write for entertainment weekly as a, a film critic, but, um, how did you decide that film criticism or writing about film was something you wanted to do? Well, you know, I didn't start off as a critic or with any ambition to be a critic. I, um, actually my first job out of school was as a foreign correspondent in the middle East. And, uh, so it's a long, it was a long road to get to writing about movies. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I started at entertainment weekly, you know, pretty much low man on the totem pole nearly 25 years ago and, uh, just gradually worked my way up. Um, for a long time, I wrote features, you know, about movies, interviewing actors and directors, um, visiting movie sets and things like like that, and it was about five or six years ago that I switched over to um, being a critic full time. Now I've talked to a lot of authors who wrote books on single films, and I've, those are—I have to say—in general, those are probably my favorite types of film books because you can really learn a lot about a film by how it was made and its development. So, uh, why Caddyshack? What was the? I mean, I know you've written about it before, I think, uh, but yeah. why did you decide that Caddyshack was the film you wanted to write about? Well, you know, I mean, there are not a lot of movies that had that deserve that sort of longer treatment, and um, you know, I think that. Uh, It helps to be a beloved movie and it helps to have a making of story that really warrants that sort of treatment, um, that sort of space. And um, in 2010, for the film's 30th anniversary, Sports Illustrated, the magazine I occasionally write for, um, asked me to do a story about the making of Caddyshack. And as I was doing the interviews for that, talking to Chevy Chase and Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, um, it quickly became apparent to me that there were so many insane stories, and this was such a sort of nightmare, chaotic, cocaine-fueled mess of a movie to get made, that um, in some ways the making of story was was better than the movie itself, you know, and that doesn't happen a lot. It's just got a really great um, soup-to-nuts filmmaking story about everything that can go wrong in the making of a movie. And I think it also sort of symbolized the beginning of an era in Hollywood comedy, uh, which allowed it to be a bigger story than just the making of one film. I know that uh, the film came, it's one of the first films, really, Blues Brothers and Animal House being the other examples that have come out of that period of time with uh, National Lampoon and uh, Saturday Night Live, which had just, Saturday Night Live premiered in 75, but it made, 1975, but it made stars out of people right from the beginning in some cases. And um, so it was really the concept of a film that featured a bunch of comics that actually then alongside other actors 
and who ended up becoming, you know, straight men for all the com the comedians in the film. And it, we've seen many films like that before, but it's probably one of the first ones I can think of that sort of featured a bunch of comics together doing their thing along with uh, trying to put together a regular story as part of the film. Yeah, I mean, certainly from this generation, which to me is sort of, to me, the most interesting generation in comedy, um, you know, sort of the baby boomer, uh, you know, post Watergate, post Vietnam uh, generation that were not just telling jokes, but telling jokes that had um, the barbed edge of satire in them. Um, you know, I, to me, Animal House was the movie that sort of started the revolution, and Caddyshack was the movie that sort of um, showed that it could be done in a in a in a loosey goosey improvised way that they had all studied at Second City and sort of perfected at Saturday Night Live. Right, because uh, and wanted to talk of what I sort of like to talk about. Obviously, the stars, but I want to talk about the the production and, and the background because many of the writers, the people who worked on Caddyshack behind the scenes, were people that this was their first film. Obviously, it was where they started, and many of them would then continue on to have great behind the scenes careers, and sometimes in front as well. Howard being an example, who somebody who did both sides, but. Um, it was one of those things where to be able to make this film probably in some ways was because of the time where Hollywood was looking for the next great hit and films like animal house, they were looking for the next great animal house. And some of these, and you talk about it in the book, the, the, the studio uh, trying to come up with something and then pretty much just willing to, to a large extent at the beginning, at least let them do what they wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, there's this mentality in Hollywood that's always been there, but, you know, it was especially uh, there at this time um, when an older generation of people who ran the studios didn't really understand what was going on in the culture. And, um, you know, they didn't quite have a handle on what this younger audience of college students, high school students, you know, people in their 20s wanted to see. And so when a movie like Animal House comes along, um, on a budget of, you know, $2 million and makes $140 million at the box office, becoming the highest grossing movie comedy of all time, you know, they think that the people who made this movie must know something and must know something that they don't know um, and will never really know. So they, you know, it just so happened that Harold Ramis and Doug Kenny, two of the writers on Caddyshack were also two of the writers on Animal House. So after Animal House came out and, and was a huge hit, they thought, let's just give these guys carte blanche to do whatever they want. Even if we don't think it's funny or we don't understand it, um, they seem to get it. So that's really how Caddyshack came along. You know, they did not have a script nailed down when they went to shoot the movie. They just really had a blank check, you know, because these people thought that they knew something. It is, uh, we, this is probably, though that is one of the things about this, the quote, unquote, unquote, improvised movies. And we start to see them pretty regularly. I mean, obviously we're well away by this point of the old studio system where usually you just rent, you, you know, you came in with a script that was done. You didn't really change it too much. And then you just shot it. And of course, in this case, because, it was because they got lucky in a sense they were able to do it as an improvised film because nobody was really paying too much attention. They had a producer, John Peters, who um, uh, in one sense was sort of backing them up, but in another sense uh, they were just as happy he wasn't around that much, right? <laughs> That's true, yeah. You know, John Peters was a you know, the studio guy who um, sort of presented himself to Harold Ramis um, and Doug Kenny and the other writer on the film, Brian Doyle Murray, as being their protector, their pit bull who would fight for them, you know, against the studios. But, you know, at the same time, he was sort of undercutting them too, um, unaware, to, you know, they weren't aware of it. But, you know, Harold Ramis, this was his first film as a director. And, uh, you know, Peters um, allowed him to direct his first movie, but at the same time, uh, was also ready to fire him if anything, the first sign of trouble. Um, so, yeah, he was the champion in one regard, but also sort of this looming threat in another way, too. You read about John P John Peters, is obviously, is a legend from this period. You hear about him all the time. I hear some of the stories, for example, when he was the producer on Batman in the Tim Burton film. 
and things like that. Some of the stories that have come out about him, um, it, they were very, they're very interesting in the same way with some of them, some of the things that came out of Caddyshack. Um, let's talk about Doug Kenny because in many ways, the way the book, the way I read it, I consider him almost to be a central, if not the central character in many ways in the book, because uh, it just felt like he was one of your main character, one of the people you wanted to focus on. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, the, the, in Ka- when you're telling the story of Caddyshack, there are bigger presences, um, more, you know, more famous names like Bill Murray and Chevy Chase and Roddy Dangerfield and Harold Ramis. Um, you know, but Doug Kenny to me is, is the most fascinating character, and I really feel like he's the most important um, sort of person in this whole story of this generational revolution in comedy. Um, and most people don't know who he is. So, uh, you know, I thought that he, I almost told the story following his arc a little bit, um, just because, you know, he seemed to be sort of this Waldo character who was central to every moment and every battle in this revolution. You know, he was the guy who, um, uh, he was an editor at the Harvard Lampoon, and he was the found one of the founders of the National Lampoon, um, which was you know this huge publishing publishing sensation in the in the 70s. And then he was one of the writers of Animal House, and then he was one of the writers and the producer of Caddyshack. I mean, everything this guy touched turned to gold, and he seemed to be. Uh, you know, I talked to about. 75 people for this book in one way or another. And all of them to a person all said that Doug Kenny was the smartest, the most creative, the cleverest, uh, the most charismatic person that they had ever met. So to me, um, you couldn't really tell the, the story of Caddyshack without him as really the main character, the through line for the whole thing. Yeah. Cause obviously you tell, a lot of you talk a lot at the first part of the book about the history of the Harvard Lampoon and then going into the National Lampoon. And he's very important to that. In fact, it's interesting some of his arc about where he disappears at one point from the, the, the Lampoon and then reappears. And he definitely had his ups and downs, but he definitely, but but you could always see that when he was there, the talent was there. Yeah, I mean, he was he was undoubtedly a genius, but definitely a troubled one. And, um, you know, there were moments when he could be flaky and he would just sort of disappear for a while and not tell people he was going away. Um, and, uh, you know, there were there were, he was famously sort of. Uh, forgetful of things, you know, he made a lot of money off Animal House and and, and the, his, the sale of the Lampoon. So people would go to his apartment and find, you know, uncashed checks for hundreds of thousands of dollars lying around. Uh, it, it, that's just kind of the guy he was. And, um, you know, when you add substance abuse on top of that, Doug Kenny was, you know, got increasingly hooked on cocaine as as you know, his life went on, and in the, in the you know, especially during the time of Caddyshack, um, you know, he sort of becomes this this tragic hero in a way. Now, the the issue of drug use was obviously already rampant before Caddyshack, but um, some of the films in this period of time, and we can go back to Blues Brothers again, where uh, obviously John Belushi in particular. And the rest of the, just about everybody else that working on that film. And then, of course, Caddyshack and then other films where drug use just became a right norm. And in fact, half of what they were doing when it came to seem like when they were talking back to the studio was trying to make sure they were hiding all of what was going on. Yeah, I mean, that was really just a part of the generation at that time. You know, at, at this point in the late 70s, uh, no one had really died from from cocaine at that point. You know, Belushi wouldn't die until after, you know, a couple of years after Caddyshack came out. Uh, and of course, Doug Kenny. Um, so so at that point, it just seemed like a party. You know, these are people who are young in Hollywood at a time when drugs are prevalent and they're they're part of the way of doing business in a way. And, you know, that sort of all emanates from the rock and roll world. But Hollywood was swept up into that really libertine atmosphere by that point. And um when they go to Florida to make the movie in the fall of 1979, um, 
not only do they have a lot of money to spend, but they're in Florida, which is really the gateway into the country for cocaine. So it really becomes a perfect storm in a way. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned Blues Brothers because, yes, cocaine on that set was was bad, especially with, with Belushi, who at that point was pretty in the grips of addiction. But um, there was a lot of sort of uh, – um, one-upsmanship, or at least they were keeping tabs on each other, because Blues Brothers and Caddyshack were shooting at the same time, and these were all friends who had worked in one way or another together on on Animal House, uh, and they sort of had a competition, a friendly competition. Like, are they using more drugs than us? Are they doing more coke than us? Are they spending more money than us? Or, you know, there was there was this definite sense of 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 keeping up with the Joneses uh, between the two films. Of course. Blues Brothers had a much larger uh, budget than Caddyshack did, and it pretty much showed on the screen, of course, as, as you point out in the book. Almost all the quote-unquote effects in, in Caddyshack were quite cheap and, and done uh, just on the fly, just in order to get them done. But uh, I guess it proves that sometimes you can make a good film without spending a huge amount of money. Absolutely. I mean, I think the budget, though I know, the budget on Caddyshack was about $6 million, and... Um, you know, it's it's they didn't. It wasn't a big budget movie at that time. It was it was definitely considered a, a B movie. And you know, I don't think that um, anyone. You know, I think Blues Brothers was closer to about twenty five, twenty seven million dollars. That was definitely they came out the same summer in nineteen eighty. So I think a lot of people expected. Blues Brothers, just by virtue of its budget, to be the much bigger movie, um, and it was the much bigger movie at the box office. But I think history has been sort of on the side of Caddyshack since then. I think it's a more beloved film than the Blues Brothers, but that's that's an opinion thing that that you know people can disagree on. Well, I think they both exist quite well as far as I'm concerned. Like I say, um, you know some. I can think of as many lines that we joke that we threw around for Blues Brothers as, but the Caddyshack ones, I think, because of the golfing storyline. And why golf? I mean, there is it is part of the of the story of the film that they decided they wanted to make a movie about golfing. Where did that come from? Well, it's interesting. I think that they had felt that you know the whole sort of thematic blueprint of Animal House that worked was this whole idea of snobs versus the slobs and. Um, and that was, you know, it's a, a theme that they wanted to rework in in their follow up. So uh, it's obviously in Caddyshack. As far as where did golf come from, you know, one of the three writers on the movie was Brian Doyle Murray, uh, Bill Murray's older brother, and it was a very personal story to him because as when he was a kid. Um, along with all of his brothers, there were nine Murray kids. They would all caddy um, just north of Chicago in some of the ritzier suburbs north of Chicago. Uh, and, and, and so they had all these great coming-of-age stories and crazy sort of anecdotes about caddying for these crazy rich club members and also just the sort of mayhem that the fellow caddies would get into. There was, they really mined their autobiographies for um, material for Caddyshack. I think to most people, Caddyshack is just this whimsical, silly, uh, slightly raunchy comedy, but it's also very autobiographical for the Murray family. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of that does definitely come out. Brian Doyle Murray, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I know he's been successful, but I really believe that he is somebody who both, you know, as a writer, deserves whatever credit he can get for it, because I think he He's the un, in some ways, unsung hero of so many films on the writing side, for sure. Of course, he's also one of the few people who can actually say they played Jack Ruby in a movie. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> JFK he, he, plays Jack Ruby, which is totally out of the, out of nowhere. I know, I know. It's I, I always, he's one of those characters that you know these character actors who, whenever you see him pop up in a movie, you just instantly smile and you know you're in good hands. You know, it's always nice to see Brian Doyle Murray pop up in the corner of a screen. So when they were developing the screenplay, obviously um, they had a story, a basic story, and that and much of that story still exists. It finally made it to the end of the film, like you say, it's the the slobs mostly it was the younger you know, the, the caddies themselves when did in the process did it did it become obvious that they were going to be putting up putting all the comedians on top of the storyline for the uh for the film 
Yeah, so the original script of of, of the movie was really, you know, uh, it did not feature uh, Bill Murray at all. Uh, Ted Knight and Roddy Dangerfield and, and Chevy Chase's characters were all sort of, you know, they were characters, but they were fairly minor. The main the main plot of the of the original script was this sort of love triangle between Danny Noonan, his Irish girlfriend at the club who works there, and another caddy. Um, and and really these these the, the characters that we now think of as the stars of the movie were really these periphery characters who just had these amusing sort of drive-by scenes. Um, uh, you know, but the thing is, is that as they were shooting the movie, it quickly became apparent that um, the stuff with the younger caddies and, and, and the love triangle just wasn't very funny. And, and the stuff that, that Rodney and, and Bill Murray and Chevy and Ted Knight were giving them um, was far better. So Ramis, the director, uh, you know, he had been trained at Second City and he trusted improvisation um, as a way of working. He just sort of threw the script into the trash and said, let's follow the funny. You know, let's beef up these guys um, who are sort of stealing the movie, make them the stars. And uh, and then we'll just figure it all out when we get to the editing room, which is which is a smart idea. But it's also a really stupid idea because, you know, cut forward a few months and you're in the editing room and you've got a bunch of really funny scenes that make no sense together. You know, there's no, you've gotten rid of this whole spine of the story. So how are you going to cut all this together in a way that actually resembles a plot? Well, you can see remnants of the old plot is still there. And in fact, some of the parts that don't seem to make, I don't want to say as much sense or don't seem as interesting are probably some of those plots. Yeah, I mean, it's really, if I was one of the young actors who went into the movie thinking I had this really juicy part, um, you know, when I went to the, if I went to the premiere and I saw what the film became, I would walk out uh, pretty ashen-faced because a lot of their scenes were left on the on the editing room floor. You know, these people thought the movie was about them, only to sort of realize that it's about these other characters uh, played by Rodney and Ted and Chevy and Bill. Um, so it's, yeah, the movie was constantly evolving. It was constantly changing. Um, you know, nine times out of 10, that is, that is a really horrible way to make a movie. Caddyshack is one of the rare instances where it actually paid off. Well, the one reason I think it helps a little bit is because Danny Newman does appear to a large extent, you know, he is the one character more than anyone else who does appear with them on a regular basis. I mean, he's in a lot of the scenes, so at least his role as the caddy uh the main caddy so to speak it helps that he's around all the time he has his scenes with chevy chase and he's got his scenes with even with rodney dangerfield and ted knight and uh so at least he's part of the whole thing even if uh as you point out it's it's largely the rest of the cast that tends to completely get lost yeah, absolutely. And I think Michael O'Keefe does a really great job with that role. I mean, I think he's he gives a really good performance and and uh you know, he's one of the few people in the movie who could actually uh resemble someone who could actually golf. Uh so, you know, uh it's I, he was just a really um great presence in the movie and it would have been a shame to to see his parts cut out more than they were. Um I just feel that like this is a movie where they went in expecting to make movie A and they came out making movie Z. Um, it's just, it just, they really did the whole thing by the seat of their pants. And in fact, one of my, <laughs> I think one of the best examples of that is the fact that we had a false pregnancy plot line that was resolved in less than 10 minutes. And yeah, yeah, and that's movie. a scene they actually. There's a scene. That's a scene that you know when she's uh, pr- prancing around at night in her nightgown on the golf course, uh, you know, relieved that she's not pregnant. That's a scene they actually had to go back and and shoot after they finished filming. Um, if you look at that scene closely, at Michael O'Keefe, he's wearing a baseball cap and a wig underneath because he was already off shooting another movie um, and had cut his hair for it. So uh, yeah, that was something that they just sort of they ditched and realized that that oops. We need to resolve this somehow after they had put the movie back together. Let's talk about Harold Ramis, because as we know, this is, was his directorial debut. He'd been writing in some of the same places that uh, Doug, uh, Kenny, and other people were. But Harold Ramis, 
why was it so important to him to direct? What was his history with wanting to direct and why this one ended up being so important to him? Well, I mean, Harold Ramis is, um, to me, really one of the unsung comedians of the of the era. You know, he uh, was such a great writer, but also a great actor. And I, I think that there was some frustration on his part because when he was writing Animal House, um, you know, he wrote it with Doug Kenny and, and Chris Miller, who was a writer at The Lampoon. Um, and, you know, the three of them really liked the script that they, they had written. Um, and then when director John Landis came on, um, he was a bit of an outsider to their lampoon world. Um, and I think Harold Ramis felt like he didn't, even though the movie was a huge success, he sort of felt like he didn't have as much control or say in that movie as he had wanted, especially as one of the, you know, the people who created it. So um, he sort of vowed that on his next movie, which ended up being Caddyshack, that he would put himself in a position to have more control so that his script for Caddyshack wouldn't be in someone else's hands uh, and they would sort of, you know, fool around with it in a way that he didn't want it to be fooled around with. Um, so that's why he uh, sort of made an ultimatum to John Peters when they, when they originally struck their deal that he wanted to be the director of the movie. And, um, you know, her, uh, John Peters took one look at him, uh, you know, Ramus with his glasses and his, he was wearing a safari jacket at the time. He looked him up and down and said, you look like a director. Why not? Okay. That's good enough for me. So, uh, so that Ramus, yeah, he wasn't completely inexperienced. You know, he had done a lot of sort of, uh, he had been the ringleader at second city for a long time. He knew how to deal with actors, but, um, this was a big jump up to the major leagues for him. Given that they knew about what was, you know, they knew the Blues Brothers would be made at the same time. Was there that aspect that Blues Brothers was once again John Landis, and this was Harold Ramis finally getting his chance? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to overstate the competitiveness between the two films, but but definitely, you know, after Animal House came out, uh, there were, you know, the, the the sort of cast and crew split off into two groups, right? So you've got half of them going on to make Caddyshack and half of them going to make Blues Brothers. And I do think there was a sense of friendly competition between the two of them. Um, you know, I think that Landis has nothing but great things to say about Harold Ramis um, and, and, and vice versa. I think you know, both of them really understand how important the other was to the early part of their career. But yeah, I mean, those movies came out in the same summer, and I, I know that each one of them wanted to beat the other at the box office. Now, the irony is that there was a third comedy that summer, Airplane, which was on no one's radar whatsoever, and that ended up being the real comedy hit of the summer. It's unbelievable to have three movies like that come out in the same summer. And I would kill for three comedies like that this summer. I mean, nowadays, you're lucky to get any comedies in the summer or anything decent, and yet to have three of those, those three and both, you know, and they all are still, they have their own classic levels. And to this day, I still, I remember seeing airplane. Of course, this was still pre videos to a large extent. So you still had to go to the theater to see these films. And, uh, I think you're right. It's just unbelievable how airplane just came out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean the, the you know, the Zucker Abrams sort of uh, team that did, did airplane uh they were on no, like i said no one's radar they were complete underdogs um and and all of these movies came in, came out within about a three or four week period of one another and i remember hearing this story about doug kenny um who was in post-production on caddyshack um almost done with the movie and was growing increasingly sort of um, unhappy with the way it was turning out. You know, he was not a big fan of The Gopher, which was a last-minute edition. Um, and I think he was just feeling like he had made too many concessions on Caddyshack, was really unhappy with the way it was turning out. And he goes to see Airplane on its opening weekend. And he's sitting there, and he's the only person in the theater who's not laughing because he knew that it was a much funnier movie, or he thought that it was a much funnier movie than his. But they all still... Or exist with each other. Now, Harold Ramis, since, uh, not just him, but I mean, the, the so-called producers on the on Caddyshack and, and the writers were all new to film to a large extent. How did they exist with the, the more uh, seasoned professionals, the behind-the-camera people who, who this was just another job to them in many ways? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, they were they they handpicked everyone they wanted to work with, and even the seasoned professionals weren't that seasoned. Uh, you know, they chose. I I remember the hearing the story about how how Harold Ramis and Doug Kenny chose their cinematographer. Um, they chose him because he not because of any of his credits, uh, but because he was a wine connoisseur, and they thought that someone who was a wine connoisseur would be able to give their movie a look of class. So I mean. These are the sort of you know the, the the criteria they were using to choose these people they weren't they weren't really screening their films and and saying that oh yeah this person really uses light and shadow very well they were thinking this guy uh you know he likes to have a drink and and probably uh can make our film look half decent because he he knows the difference between uh you know pinot noir and merlot uh it's not they weren't exactly uh you know very particular about who who they chose for this movie and, but in the same way, things worked out because, for example, uh, was this Kenny Loggins' first film that he wrote a soundtrack for or he'd already done anything before before this? This was the first film that he wrote a song directly for. Um, there's another one of his songs that Barbara Streisand sang in A Star is Born, um, which is how he got the gig. Uh, Barbara Streisand at the time was dating John Peters. And so Peters remembered Kenny Loggins from the whole Star is Born experience. And he called up Kenny Loggins and he said to him, hey, listen, uh, we'd really like to get some original music in this in this movie. We'd love for you to come in and watch the movie and maybe think about writing a song for it. So uh, they invited Loggins to see uh, an early screening of the movie, um, and Peter sits him down in a, a completely empty screening room and says to him, look, uh, the movie I'm about to show you is not finished, um, and you should know that at the beginning of this movie, a gopher is going to come out and do a little dance. And Kenny Loggins uh, remembered thinking that that sounded like the stupidest thing he had ever heard. Um, but Kenny Loggins, you know, he was a really good interview because he said that um, when he was watching the opening for the movie, he he, he immediately, they, the temp track that they had uh, in the movie at the time, the sort of temporary music was um, Bob Dylan's uh, Gotta Serve Somebody. And so he, he sort of gleaned from that that they were looking for this sort of rebellious anthem. Um, and he went back home after we watched the movie and in just a matter of a couple of hours he wrote uh, I'm Alright, just like that. He said it was one of the easiest songs he had ever written. And the rest of the film has its music points as well. I mean, obviously it's not there's there's also a regular orchestra track, but there's also other songs that, that come in and out throughout the entire film that really that we now nowadays it's just become the norm that you use music you use popular songs in order to make your points in, in many ways and and i'm not saying it wasn't done before this one of course it, it was it was but it just seemed like it was one of those things that from behind you know in post-production ended up working out quite well for the for the film absolutely yeah the soundtrack really uh you know peters was 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 more than a more than more, more. He was more experienced as, as a music sort of person than a, than a movie person at that point, just because of his association with Barbara Streisand. So, um, you know, he, I think he understood that having a uh, a wall to wall soundtrack that you could release um, as the movie came out was really important source of revenue and um, would also be a way for him to you know, get a little bit richer too. So, uh, you know, he was, he was not, uh, people make fun of John Peters a lot, um, because he is unapologetically brash. Um, but, uh, he's also, you got to give him credit for being a pretty smart business mind sometimes too. Um, obviously there's all kinds of people in the film, Ranji Dangerfield, some of the stories in there about, for example, that he thought he was bombing because he wasn't getting any reactions, missing the point that he, this was not a live performance, so there was no audience, so to speak, and, and, and that kind of thing. But the person I'd like to talk about now is Bill Murray. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, he was largely not, I mean, he, had, he was on Saturday Night Live by this point, but he's the one that, to me, becomes the total wild card in the whole film, and yet... Um, as you point out in the book, his role was probably the least well-written going in. 
Yeah, I mean, even more than that, it was it was not just the least well written. It was the it was the least written. Uh, there were there were no lines at all written for Carl Spackler. Um, Bill Murray uh, improvised everything that comes out of his mouth, more or less, in that movie. Uh, you know, they knew they had already cast Ted Knight and Chevy Chase and, and Rodney Dangerfield. Those were the three stars of the movie, and the studio Orion said that they wanted one more star. Um, and so, uh, they, you know, went to Bill Murray, um, you know, obviously he agreed to be in it because his brother was also in it and was one of the writers and it was largely a Murray story. So he had some time between shooting, um, his Hunter Thompson movie, where the Buffalo roam and his next season of Saturday Night Live, but they only had him for a week. So Bill Murray shows up on set and, um, and, uh, you know, they, they basically just said to him, uh, they gave him a situation, um, like, for example, with the Cinderella story scene. They just sort of told him what the, the idea for the scene was, and, and he just ran with it. Um, you know, that scene in particular is, is something that he did completely off the top of his head and did it in one take. So, um, you know, that's just the kind of improviser that Bill Murray was back then. Um, he is just sort of uh was working at the height of his powers. Now the thing the biggest thing problem with Bill Murray is A they didn't have him very long so they worked him like a dog and B uh they were very concerned about having him on the set at the same time as Chevy Chase because the two of them had a very very turbulent history dating back to Saturday Night Live where Bill Murray was Chevy's replacement after Chevy left. Um and uh, they got into a fight backstage when Chevy came back to guest host, uh, like an actual fist fight. So I think a lot of people, when they realized that both of them were going to be in Caddyshack, sort of realized that they would have to be walking on eggshells um, on the set because they weren't quite sure how this was going to work out. <laughs> That's, and it's still interesting, though, that they did do that one scene together, which uh, does definitely feel improvised, but still... Uh, um, it's like Chevy Chase. It's one of those few times where he's seen perfectly willing to just back off and let Bill Murray do be Bill Murray because or be be him because Chase in that scene is really the the uh, is really the foil. He's not really the comic in that scene. I think that's a really really smart observation. I think it's absolutely true. Um, you know, they they that scene um, was wasn't in the script. Obviously, the scene in Carl Shack the whole pool or the pond thing. And that was a, a scene that the, the studio sort of demanded because they realized late in the game that we have two of the biggest stars in comedy in our movie, but we don't have a scene of them together. So they were sort of, Bill Murray had to fly back down from New York while he was doing Saturday Night Live to, to shoot that scene. And they got together along with the three writers uh, in their trailer over lunch and sort of hashed out this, this idea for a scene. And that's completely, the scene is completely ad-libbed and and both of them uh saw it as a bit of a competition um and you know they they were trying to make the other one laugh um and if you watch the scene now you can kind of see both of them almost break a couple of times um in, in the scene um but but you're right because Chevy Chase was smart enough even though Chevy Chase was a bigger star at the time he was smart enough to realize that Bill Murray was a better improviser and if you go toe to toe with Murray trying to be the alpha dog, uh, especially when you have such a sort of turbulent history, um, he's going to turn you into hamburger. So uh, Chase was very smart to sort of let Murray drive that scene. And uh, he gets off a, a bunch of great lines, but you're right. I think Murray is driving that scene. And yet if you watch, I mean, this is one of those situations, I think, where visually that's where Chase shined in this in that scene because you watch his reactions, his actual reactions, and that's where I think some of his comedy comes in. Just and like you say, the pond to the pool thing. But there's just that's where I found some of it. And, and looking around and looking at uh, at Carl Shack, and that's where Chase ended up being very low key, but it worked in this particular case for him. I agree. I think it's Chevy's best scene in the movie. And it's it's interesting because I think at that point in his career, he really envisioned himself as sort of this Cary Grant leading man. And um, and maybe that wasn't his calling. Maybe his calling was to be an ensemble comedian. And, and, and you can't help but wonder um, how his career would have played out differently had he sort of 
gone that way as opposed to being the leading man. So obviously from reading the book and then reading the afterward, you talk a lot about because, you know, you've been working, you've been writing about Caddyshack for a while. So you had interviews from back in 2010, I think, when you did your first story. But um, is most of what you did, how, how much of it is the interviews that helped you put this together? Obviously, you must have looked at other materials, but how did you pull the whole thing together? Yeah, it's it, there were there weren't really a lot of other materials to be honest with you. I mean, it's really it was mostly interviews. Um, you know, it's it's really just a case of reporting. You know, you have to interview not just the stars of the movie, but um, everyone who you can find who was involved in the movie. You know, whether that's uh, the, the editor or the assistant editor or uh, you know, just extras or people with small parts, people at the studio at the time, um, friends of the people who are no longer alive. I mean, you really just have to try to comb the waterfront and, and, and get as many anecdotes, uh, as you can, you know, that's just, that's just making a lot of phone calls and doing a lot of interviews. And, you know, the only problem with that is that when you're dealing with a movie that's nearly 40 years old, um, you oftentimes get a couple of different versions of the same story, um, that have competing, uh, facts. So you really have to do a little bit of further digging when it comes to that. You know, there, there are some great archives at the uh, Academy of Motion Pictures um, out in L.A. Uh, so, you know, it's a lot of that sort of stuff, just just shoveling spade work, you know? Well, the good thing is, is you were able to interview somebody like Harold Ramis, who obviously passed away between 2010 and, and the release of the book, but you were able to get good information and good stories from him uh, and of course, some of the other people. Is there anybody that you, I mean, who is who is still alive that you did not interview that you wished you'd been able to to talk to about the film? Um, not really. I mean, I feel like I I got everyone I needed and then some. I don't feel like there's one you know sort of white whale that got away. Um, I, I, as you mentioned, I was really lucky with, with Harold Ramis, you know, I, in the, in the course of my job, just over the years, having worked at entertainment weekly for so long, I had interviewed him a number of times. Um, I had also interviewed him, uh, for an animal house story back in 1998 and, and had, you know, that transcript, um, where, where we go into the lampoon quite a bit. Um, so, so I, it wasn't just, um, it was, it was a number of interviews that I had done with him. And I have to say, you know, Harold Ramis is one of those people who is such a great interview that really, um, you know, an hour talking to him is like spending a week with, with most people. He's really, um, just a font of, uh, uh, of great anecdotes, um, but also just one of the rare good guys in, in Hollywood. Were you able to talk to Bill Murray about the film? Oh yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I interviewed Bill Murray, um, for about an hour and, uh, he was wonderful. You know, the trouble with Bill Murray, right. who gets a, has a reputation. Yeah. I him. mean, yeah, he has a reputation for being sort of an, you know, uh, he, a moody guy, but you know, that's, that's to me, wasn't the problem. The problem was, was getting him. Um, so, you know, Bill Murray is, is sort of a rare Hollywood creature. He's like Bigfoot a little bit, you know, he doesn't have the usual publicity machinery that most actors and directors have. He doesn't have a publicist or an agent or any of the people you would make an interview request through. So what he does have is this 1-800 number, um, which if you can get a hold of it, uh, is just an outgoing beep. There's no actual message. You just have to, you know, the beep goes off and you just have to make your case for why he should call you back. And it, it's not just just for reporters it's for you know if i'm a director and i want him to be in my next movie you have to go through the same sort of weird protocol for him and um you know i i left a lot of messages you know i i probably left a good 15 20 messages for him over the course of a month uh sort of explaining what i was doing and 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 um and eventually uh with the help of a mutual friend uh, he eventually called me back and uh it was late at night and i was in my office and i i'm so thankful i was there but i saw that it was a south carolina number uh on the phone and it was about 9:30 at night 
And I picked it up, and as soon as I heard the uh, voice on the other end of the phone, you know immediately from a lifetime of movies who it is. So, uh, you know, the problem was getting him. But once I had him, you know, he was he was gracious and 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 you know very uh, sentimental and, and nostalgic and and told great stories about that time period. And um, I think he was really uh, happy to talk about it, which which surprised me. Yeah, because that's one of the things that comes out of the book, that this whole attitude that he has about not having an, a better way of putting it, an entourage or anything like that, is that that's nothing new with him. That was what it was like then, too. That yeah. You, you weren't always sure where he was. You just hoped he showed up when he said he was going to show up because that's all you could do. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, he was, you know, Bill Murray is, is tremendously talented, uh, and he was at the top of his game as far as comedy was concerned back then. Um, but he also is just, in a way, his in his own weird way, a tremendous flake. You know, I mean, you don't know if he's going to show up when you're making a movie. He says he's going to be there, but he may show up a week late. You just don't know. He's He's a complete wild card. It's funny, I was just looking at my questions, and I was writing the question about Bill Murray, how I was going to talk about Bill Murray, and I said, he's known to be different than other actors and comedians. I was originally going to say he's been known to be flaky, but I didn't yeah. want to say it that way. Thank you for saying it. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're welcome, and it's absolutely true. So now that you've, you did major articles about it, I mean, an article about it, and now a book, do you think you've got Caddyshack out of you now? Uh, yeah, I think I probably do. I, you know, I, 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 I hope that there's nothing I find out in the future uh, that I, you know, about the movie that I didn't include in, in the book. Uh, you know, I think I've got it covered. I don't, you know, I, I, if it was on TV tonight and I was flicking around the channels and I came across it, I would still probably watch it to the end. Uh, but um, yeah, I think I got it out of my system. Of course, we also joke when we were growing, like I was telling you with my brothers, that Caddyshack was one of those films that would show up on regular cable. And it was always the, one of the jokes. And there were a couple other movies that were similar to this back in the day when they didn't film multiple versions of a scene for language. Uh, if it showed up on regular TV, it was sort of always funny watching how they got around some of the language. Yeah, yeah. I, my favorite one is for the, uh, the, the sanitized version is the last line in the movie, which is Roddy Dangerfield saying, hey, everybody, we're all going to get laid. Uh, in, the, in the sanitized version, it's, hey, everybody, we're all going to take a shower. Smoking the Bandit's another one that really didn't make it very well on the television. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to see the sanitized version of that, it's pretty bad. Sorry for that kind of stuff. It's concerned. Nowadays, Hollywood works that kind of thing out pretty much normally. But back yeah. then, and anyway, but so, um, do you have any, what, what are you, obviously you've got a regular job, but, uh, are you thinking of, of other writing going forward? New projects? Uh, other books? Yeah. I'm sort of working, I'm sort of noodling on an idea right now that I, I sort of have to figure out how I would approach it, but, but, um, yeah, I mean, I'd like to do it again. It was a really fun project and it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's hard to juggle, you know, writing a book and reporting a book with a full-time film critic job, um, you know, where you have to turn in a number of reviews every week and, and, and you're pretty busy every day. Um, but it was also really fulfilling in a way. And, um, I, I would like to, to try it again. Um, I might need to, to, to take a little bit of, uh, R and R first, but, but I definitely would like to do it again for sure. So, what do you think the state of movie movie making is these days we're talking about now with especially with streaming now becoming such a major part of the whole process and having you know we're halfway through this well i guess we're halfway through the summer as far as summer films and now that summer starts at the beginning of may um where are we i mean obviously superhero films have not you know never been bigger than they are right now but is there other things out there that are that are worth seeing 
Well, I mean, I think the state of movies sort of boils down to two main things right now. One is Netflix, and the other one is Marvel. Um, and, and, and you mentioned both of those. I mean, you know, unfortunately, I, I, I think actually most of the Marvel movies are pretty well made. I'm not necessarily a superhero guy. It's not something that I grew up, you know, sort of reading comic books. I didn't, I didn't do that. So, um, you know, I, I did, but I, I read DC. So. <laughs> oh, okay, that's fair. Uh, I know that the people are partisans about uh, which which uh, you know uh, label they follow, um, but uh, you know I think that even though those movies are really well made, I think their success um, has really squeezed out so many of the movies that I do enjoy. Um, so even though you know a movie like Wonder Woman or Black Panther or The Avengers can be good, um, unfortunately, it's their success. Um, sort of makes the environment inhospitable to middle budgeted sort of comedies, um, sort of more adult uh, dramas for grownups. Um, so if you go back and look at the movies that were nominated for Oscars, you know, like 20 years ago, you know, most of those movies aren't getting made today anymore. Um, you know, there's always a few of them in at the end of the year because the awards are coming around. But in general, it, it's really those movies have been squeezed out. And I think that's a real tragedy. Um, as far as Netflix goes, you know, I think that that's a company that's releasing a ton of content. I, I But I don't think a, a lot of it, at least on the movie side, is very memorable. Um, they seem to be more interested in quantity rather than quality. Um, so I, I think that, you know, if they can get their act together in terms of movies, I think they have some good TV shows, but in terms of movies, um, that could be a place where all of those movies that are getting squeezed out of theaters, you know, like I mentioned, comedies and, and more grown-up movies, that's where they could be and they could live there. But But they don't seem to be, you know have a handle on that quite yet. So I, I think we're, we're in a, in a, in a place right now where really it's just, um, blockbusters are killing everything else, you know? And the funny with me, Netflix, I'm more of a documentary film buff, so to speak. And I will say Netflix has done a pretty good job there, but you're right. I agree with you. Yeah. You're, you're at times you sit there and you look through the Netflix and you say, Nothing really jumps out as, you know, you're right, the series shows are interesting, many of them, but it, finding something else movie-wise, I mean, I tend to watch the documentaries sometimes over and over again. That's where I think yeah. some of what they're doing is, is really spectacular. I agree with you there 100%. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. As I said before we started the interview, I know it's been a busy time for you with the book because uh, you've been doing a lot of interviews, a lot of other kinds of relate uh, publicity for it but i do thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this um as i said before it was really a great book and i hope people not only re watch read the book but then go ahead and watch the film afterwards again because i think you'll see the film a completely different way because you'll start to see some of the things that come through in the book so well as far as um how it was made and and how it became what it became well, thanks, Joe. I really appreciate it. You know, it's been nice talking to you too. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I never get tired of talking about Caddyshack and it's, it's always good to talk to someone who, who, uh, who knows the movie well. So, uh, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. My great thanks to Chris for his time. His book is definitely a fantastic look at the making of a great film. This is Joel Cherney and I will be back soon with more new books and film on the new books network. Mm -hmm.